Hello, funky listeners, and welcome to another episode of Funk Radio. This is your host, Kyle. And that's your host, Kyle. And that's your host, Peter. And I'm your host, Peter. Hi, we're back. Hello. Hi. So, what, what month is it? It's April. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty bad when I actually have to ask what month it is and not what day it is anymore, because everything is blurring together, and this last year has felt like just, I don't know, a week. You know what? Also, it feels like it's only been a week since Prince died. Yes. But that was like how many years ago? I mean, it's got to be at least a couple of years ago now, right? It was in 2016. So Wow, five, was it that long? Yeah. I feel like that this, just happened. I know, right? This is like going on five years ago now. It's funny. I remember um, the day that he died because I was at a job interview some someone texted me like oh prince died and then i was thinking because my mom is a huge fan of prince i'm like oh no she's gonna be really sad well your mom was actually a big inspiration for this episode if by big inspiration you mean she basically nagged me to do it for like five years then yes yeah so (laughs) i think we at the time of his death we actually kind of had the idea to do yeah, kind of like a that was my bad memoriam episode, but we didn't. I don't remember why. Well, I guess we just kept kind of putting it off or something. Yeah, we were gonna do a memoriam episode, but then that particular year, a bunch of different R and B and art soul artists kept dying. It was a very bad year. Oh yeah, for that. I so forgot about that. Towards the end of the year, we just ended up doing kind of an in memoriam for a bunch of the artists that died. Oh, you're right. So we did touch on it, I guess. Yeah, at least a little bit, but um. I forgot we did that. Um, what uh, episode one seventy eight that was? If listeners oh, wow. are interested, I forgot That's... Sharon Jones was part of that collective too. Oh was... yeah, that makes me sad because she she had cancer. So yeah, listeners, yeah. if you haven't uh, guessed it by now, um, we're doing an episode talking about the career of Prince. For those of you that don't know who Prince was, um, he was an American singer and songwriter. He played multiple instruments, he was a record producer, an actor, and he directed his own movies. Uh, He's widely actually regarded as one of the most famous musicians of his era, basically the 80s and and 90s. Mm -hmm. Um, He's considered a guitar virtuoso, and he was well known for his, uh, his work across multiple genres, his very, I guess we'll say flamboyant persona. Uh... And his wide vocal range, which included far-reaching falsetto and high-pitched screams. The reason he was so innovative in the 80s was because he uh, fused or infused his music with inspiration from pretty much every genre uh, under the sun, from funk to Latin music to country to uh, psychedelic to pop, jazz, hip-hop, pretty much everything. He He wasn't bound by any one genre, he just did whatever he wanted to do basically <laughs> you know and cr- creatively speaking i have a lot of respect for that yeah i, I mean the people who go outside those established boundaries are often the ones who end up you know being the ones who are remembered for as their I, respective fields as i get older and and have more appreciation for like multiple genres of music i i mm-hmm. tend to appreciate musicians that kind of fuse different genres together it's like food it's like you know mexican food is good korean food is good but you know it's better mexican korean food 
Kyle has learned to love Mexicans and Koreans. Yes. <laughs> you make it sound like it was just recently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this was just this week, listeners. So yeah, so he in in his eclectic sound that he created, he pioneered um what ended up becoming called the Minneapolis sound, since he was from uh Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is sort of a funk rock subgenre that emerged in the late seventies, pretty much solely because of him. I didn't know there was a thing called the Minneapolis. I, 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 it sounds familiar that he was from there. I didn't realize there was a whole like. Yeah, there might be a future of... episode because I know we talked about like you know Philadelphia sound, Detroit sound, blah blah blah. We've covered other um, yeah music that's kind of specific to certain areas, but everyone kind of forgets about Minnesota. So yeah, so Prince was super eclectic. Um, so I guess we're gonna go through kind of chronologically his his musical career. A little bit of setup before that, though, talking about his early life, which did kind of influence, obviously, his direction. He became really interested in music at a very young age and actually taught himself how to play the piano, guitar, and drums. Damn. His parents broke up when he was 10, um, and he and his, his sister split the time between their parents' house houses. So he eventually ran away and moved in with his neighbors, the Anderson family. Uh, in high school... He formed a band called Grand Central, which later became known as Champagne, um, with Andre Anderson, obviously one of the Anderson families, who later changed his name to Andre Simone, and Morris Day. I think we've talked about Morris Day in the time before on this show. Yeah, they were like another sort of, um, I think he's actually kind of part of that, you know, Minneapolis funk rock sound, but... He came up at the same time as Prince, and they were basically best friends, uh, you know, in their early years. So I thought that was kind of cool. Huh. It's always fun to, when you see, like, two famous musicians that, like, knew each other before they were famous. Yeah, like they grew up together or whatever. Yeah. I found a 2009 interview he did with Travis Smiley, where he revealed that uh, actually when he was a child, he suffered from epileptic seizures, and he was often teased about it in school. And he told the uh, the interviewer, quote, Early in my career, I tried to compensate by being as flashy and as noisy as I could. So mm. basically, it's kind of that whole like coping mechanism of like, oh, kids make fun of me for a disability, so I'm just going to... Draw yourself, yeah, or draw attention to yourself in for other a reason, ways. Yeah, that would... exactly. You, you control the attention by drawing it to yourself in ways that you want, instead of ways right. that you don't want. In 1978... He ended up signing with Warner Brothers Records. Uh, he formed a band called The Revolution, which would become known as Prince and the Revolution. Um, and his first album, which was called Purple Rain in 1984, would go on to actually probably still be his most famous album of all of them. Hmm. It was not only an album of, in and of itself, it was a soundtrack for a movie that he created of the same name that basically... It was mm, sort right. of a telling of his early life. It was sort of an autobiography, but it was kind of like told in a way that it it was him, but it wasn't him, if that makes sense. Like a fictionalized telling of yeah, his Yeah, kind of life. like 8 Mile was for Eminem, where it was like basically his mm. early life, but it, the characters, you know, were just kind of changed up a bit. Right. And the movie itself actually became incredibly successful, uh, grossing almost $70 million dollars. And it co-starred uh, actress Apple. Ap- I'm gonna butcher this. Apollo Ap- Apolina Apoyoina. I don't. Yeah, uh, Apolina <laughs> Catero and Morris Day of Morris Day in the time. Um, 
The movie ended up uh, getting an Academy Award for Best Original Song Score. So, that's a thing. So, wait, hang on. So, was he... So Since that was his debut album, does that mean he wasn't... He didn't already have, like, that fan base for his music? It, like, did was this, like, his debut period? Yeah, this was basically his debut um, with Warner Brothers, where he... Okay. For whatever reason, the movie, yeah, the movie did really well. I don't know if it was because maybe... I don't know if he released the album before the movie and, like, that created hype for the movie, but... Right. And it wasn't like they went and see them to see the movie because oh I know who Prince is, it was just a good movie yeah. so people saw it. I've never really known the chronology of Prince, so I guess I always just assumed that Purple Rain was like later once he was already popular. But yeah, it sounds like it was that's kind of a, right at the beginning. That's a good point, and yeah, it, it sounds like really that was kind of like his big jump onto both um, music and really acting because he act he acted in the movie himself, obviously. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was it, it's kind of insane that like someone of his fame basically started out his career with like a number one album and a and a successful tie-in movie at the same time. Like that's yeah. not really done very much. From that album, uh, there were obviously many famous songs, but there was a song on the album called "Darling Nikki" that actually incited controversy due to explicit uh, lyrics and visuals. In fact, then Senator Al Gore's wife, Tipper Gore bought the album for their young daughter and then listened to the track she was so horrified by the lyrics of it that she eventually pushed for uh, albums to have labels on them that warned of graphic lyrics which oh is that where that started from yeah i'm surprised we never really delved into that more that's actually another interesting subject but that whole well, like I don't know what you call it, the, the censorship fears of the 80s that led to like parental advisory labels and stuff on music. Well, we did do that really early on because um, I that was that's one of my favorite topics that we covered in like in the early days of the show. I almost wonder if it would be worth like revisiting it at some point or like diving, and maybe diving deeper e- into expanding it, yeah. upon it. Yeah, because I would have to go back and listen to kind of remind myself of how we covered it, but. But it, yeah, that would be a, a cool one to go back to. For sure, for sure. Uh, especially in light of, you know, how, I guess, censorship has changed and how things that were considered explicit in the 80s are basically mundane now. Right. Yeah, so that was episode 59 nice. uh, from 2013. So, quite a ways back. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I, I thought it was funny that his song basically spurred that entire, like, embarrassing point in our political history so with that uh let's play a little clip of darling nikki so our listeners can see what was so supposedly controversial about it she said sign your name on a dotted line the lights went out nikki started to So that was in what year was that? Oh, 1984. Okay, so 85. Yes. Um, uh, next album, I guess. Yeah. Already? Uh, we're, That's pretty fast. We're not going to go through every album um, because he literally has like 20. So that would take yeah. three hours. We're just going to hit the big ones. Uh, in 1985, uh, right after you know the success of Purple Rain, he released his sophomore album called Around the World in a Day which had uh, a lot of top 10 tracks, including Raspberry Beret, uh, which is kind of a more whimsical, sort of up-tempo up, t- up 
tempo sort of tune. Uh, the record uh, continued to feature Prince's uh, penchant for playing a large range of instruments, uh, and a lot of the lyrics in his songs dealt with messages of self-love. So we're going to just play a little clip of one of the songs off this album that you've probably heard, Peter. It's definitely one of his more famous ones. Uh, it's called Raspberry mm. Beret. I have never heard this before. Really? Yeah. Huh. Uh, it's funky, though. It's kind of cool. It's a little bit uh, offbeat sort of song there. Yeah, yeah. Shortly after that, for whatever reason, because he's Prince and he just does a lot of stuff, he disbanded uh, the revolution and kind of just went solo. So in doing that, he was able to consolidate a various different sort of shelved projects that he, you know, had put off into what ended up becoming known as a double album that was called Sign Sign O The Times, which came out in 1987. The album was known for more social commentary than his previous albums, and yet it also contained sort of more superficial uh, pop hits like You Got The Look, which is a raucous duet that he did with Scottish singer Sinead Easton. Let's play a little clip of You Got The Look. Um, it's not as socially common ish as some of his other songs but it's fairly famous I've heard it before I don't know if it's one you'd recognize or not um, but it's pretty good That's a fun song. Another, again, this was—I guess—I just didn't realize how much of Prince's music I didn't realize. I think, like, I didn't know, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 weird for being such a famous artist, and it, maybe it's because we grew up in the '90s, so we weren't, you know, around during the the height of his popularity. Mm-hmm. But he's definitely one of those either artists where you either know him and you know a lot of his songs, or you really haven't heard much of his stuff. Yeah. His next album that we're going to talk about was already his 11th album, and this came out in 1989. So from 84 to 89, he literally made 11 albums. Wow. That guy was cranking them out. Yeah, basically he just didn't stop. Obviously not everyone was a super hit, but he basically was just like quantity over quality. (laughs) Not that, you know, there wasn't a lot of quality there, but... So, this one I didn't know, and this is kind of amazing, and I almost want this album because I like movie soundtracks... He did the soundtrack for the original Batman, Tim Burton Batman movie in 1989. Really? Yes. And it's kind of amazing. (laughs) And the soundtrack, the soundtrack to the movie offered uh, one of his uh, new number one hits called Bat Dance, (laughs) as well as a a top five R&B hit called Party Man. So Bat Dance and Party Man, I thought was kind of funny. Hmm. The video for Bat Dance, I, I won't even describe it to you before you see it. Uh, I just want to see your initial reaction, but it is something to behold. Uh, so hmm. I guess with that, let's play a little clip of Bat Dance by Prince. Sticky Veil. Sticky Veil. I like Batman. 
Bruce Wayne. Well, this is really freaking weird. <laughs> I mean, the, the, just listening to the song, I'm sure listeners sounds like a kooky song, but it, yeah, the video definitely adds another layer onto this. Yeah, listeners, uh, I highly encourage you to go look up the video on YouTube, but it includes um, a chorus of uh, synchronized dancing jokers and Batman, as well as Prince in kind of a sort of Joker slash Two-Face get up basically saying get the funk up which i thought was fun and dancing all crazy because he's i guess supposed to be the joker so yeah so he did the soundtrack to batman obviously another wildly successful thing because that movie was huge um that really kind of i think set off like the resurgence of like batman obsession because then in the 90s you had the batman cartoon um Mm. and then obviously you know batman the christian bale one came out in 2005 but Really, up until the the Tim Burton Batman movie, uh, there was like a huge span of time where between the '60s and '80s, where everyone kind of forgot about Batman. So good for good for him. Well, probably with how campy the '60s version was, if I'm remembering my Batman correctly, mm-hmm. um, people probably it probably put off a lot of people of like, oh, you know, we don't take Batman seriously because of that. So it probably took new visionaries to be like hey let's reboot this yeah yeah i wonder if they'll ever uh if it'll come full circle and they'll reboot batman to be goofy again i mean i guess you could kind of consider lego batman to be a version of that but i guess i mean like yeah live action batman i don't know that'd be interesting or like just a more light-hearted batman that's not like you know grim and like my parents died uh um, so <laughs> that came out in 1989, uh, Prince went into the nineties, uh, like everybody else apparently. And in 1992, he re-signed a new record deal with Warner brothers. That was a hundred million dollars, which at the time was considered the largest recording music publishing contract in history. And it allowed him oh. the freedom to produce TV, film, book, and merchandising deals separately from... Uh, his Warner Brothers contract. Uh, by comparison, fellow pop music giants like Michael Jackson and Madonna had $60 million contracts that were all-inclusive, which basically meant anything they did was controlled by the company. So he signed a bigger contract and got more freedom, which uh, nice. we'll get into his beef with Warner Brothers in a bit, but it was pretty pretty bad, actually. So he formed an- another new band, Uh, called Prince and the New Power Generation and they released uh, an album called, it was just called the Love Symbol Album and you know like the male and female Greek symbols, like the Greek symbol for men and women or whatever, it's like one is like the circle with the cross and one is like the circle with the arrow coming out of it Mm -hmm. he basically like fused the two and made like a mono gendered symbol and it became kind of his moniker so to speak or like a symbol that he would use to represent himself. So this album was just titled that symbol, but because people, there's no way to pronounce that, people just called it the Love Symbol album. Although his uh, album was embraced by some critics, the sales of it actually didn't do really well, and so the lack of success from this album after just signing a $100 million deal kind of created some tension between him and the Warner Brothers record label, because they're like, wait, we just paid you 
more money than any artist in history and he made a flop. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, after kind of looking over his contract, he basically realized that he didn't actually have creative control over the master recordings of his Mm. music. And basically it was like, oh yeah, anything you do is property of any music you record, I should say, is property of Warner Brothers. And despite signing a $100 million contract, he didn't like that. All your music are belong to us. Exactly. So he he felt that he was being too controlled by Warner Brothers in kind of, you know, we're not going to let just let you do what you want. We're going to f- make you do what we consider to be popular to make us money. Well, welcome to the music industry. <laughs> yeah. Basically, he realized that in looking through the contract, you know, it said any property of Prince is, you know, any creative property created, done by Prince is owned by Warner Brothers. So he's like, oh... You own everything that Prince does. I'm just going to change my name. (laughs) So he changed his name from Prince to the uh, hieroglyph of, you know, the male and female symbol that we just talked about. Uh, Uh He changed, he, he like legally changed his name from Prince to that in 1993. And then he ended up just using that as his name until like the 2000s. But because no one could say that symbol... Everyone just Uh referred to him as, quote, the artist formerly known as Prince. Wow. He was in such a beef with his label that he just basically changed his name and was like, you know, fine, you want to own everything Prince has? I'm just going to do stuff under a new name. Pretty ballsy move. I I mean, I guess it worked, right? I mean, yeah. um, Was was that, did that stand up legally? It must have. Apparently it did. I mean, in some weird legally loophole thing, he went on and made more music and slowly, basically by wearing them down he was able to get out of his contract i guess in in, in any in future tours that he would do in the, throughout the 90s he actually would write the word slave on his face to kind of convey mm. his uh displeasure with the label <laughs> as basically you know he's a slave to them so basically yeah through like a public relations campaign of sorts he basically just got out of his contract by just making warner brothers you know the enemy of his fans and obviously, you know, the sort of loophole of like, oh, my name's my name's not Prince. What are you talking about? So I, I thought um, the artist formerly known as Prince, I thought that's what he like officially well, had named himself. He, yeah, he basically referred to himself as the artist formerly known as Prince, but would just, you know, when signing his name, I guess, he didn't write that whole thing out. <laughs> he just wrote the symbol. Mm, okay. So basically, yeah, he went to war with Warner Brothers for about half a decade. And then once he was finally released from his contractual obligations, he released a triple album that he uh, fittingly called Emancipation in 1996. Mm. He made, you know, the Love Symbol album. It didn't do very well. Warner Brothers got pissed at him. He got in a fight with Warner Brothers. The first album he came out with after um, being released from Warner Brothers' contract became a certified platinum album. (laughs) Oh, wow. Basically, like, yeah, he made one bad album, and Warner Brothers is like, what the hell? He got in a fight with them, and then once he got out from under them, he ended up having an, another successful album. I thought that was kind of funny. But I'm sure they were thrilled about that. Oh, yeah. Uh, so the album went on to become Certified Platinum, and it featured a really uh, interesting remake of the song of the Betcha by Golly Wow by the Stylistics. Uh and it's really good, so we're going to play a clip of it. Um, 
this was off his 96 album Emancipation, like I said. Uh, but yeah, let's play a clip. This is extremely like '90s R&B, right? I mean, it doesn't. It almost doesn't even like if you had played that for me. I don't even know if I would have identified it as Prince. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's very like soft focus, very '90s R&B crooning. Like it could be Tony, Tony, mm-hmm. Tony, or something. So he had this album in '96, and then between like '96 and 2004, he kind of laid low, and then in 2004. He returned to the limelight uh, to perform at the Grammy Awards with Beyonce. And uh, in that same year, he was actually inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which I think is fairly impressive because if I remember, you have to have been making music continuously for like 30 years. And since he started in 1984, he was inducted within the first year of him being eligible. So, Well, if anybody's going to do that, I guess it's Prince. Yeah. So that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. That spring of 2004, he released the album uh, Musicology, which I remember because I was like, what, freshman year of high school when this came out? I remember my mom getting the album and like playing it incessantly. It was a big deal because mm. it was the first album he had done in a while. So she was all about it. I guess in hindsight, we probably could have had her on this episode, but. I asked. She, I don't, uh, I don't think she wanted to be. She's uh. Mike shy, I guess. So, yeah, he, he kicked off this uh, the, his first album in like eight years with a music tour that became the, uh, it was actually the top concert draw in the U.S. for that year, like the top selling concert. Hmm, okay. Series of concerts, I guess, if he's on tour. And the album uh, won two Grammys, and uh, it had a dreamy ballad from it that became a number one hit called Call My Name. So we're going to play a clip of that, and this is off his 2004 album, Musicology. I'm seeing his face in all these videos from the 80s to 2004, and he literally doesn't age. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> like, he can do a lot of vocal, different vocal styles, as you were saying earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, as we've heard, even just in the clips that we've been playing. But, yeah, the way he looks is pretty much exactly the same. Yeah. It's kind of insane. He's like the ageless person. So that was in 2004? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then in 2007, he performed at Super Bowl 41 halftime show uh, on a massive stage that was shaped like his famous symbol that we talked about, the male-female Greek symbol. It ended up later being regarded, like being officially voted uh, by Billboard.com as the greatest Super Bowl performance ever, like as far as like huh. quality, listenership, or viewership, which again, they've been doing it for 50 years, that's saying something. Yeah, uh, no kidding. Um, in 2010, um, basically, it was a very good year for him because he was also featured in Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World. Uh, mm. He earned a Lifetime Achievement Award from BET, 
and he ended the year with an induction into the Grammy Hall of Fame. So Damn. Basically, I guess it's a Hall of Fame for if you get enough Grammys, we're just going to give you a Grammy for getting Grammys. It's kind of amazing that like, any one of those awards or things would be you know a big thing in someone's life, but then like three of those happened in one year for him. Mm-hmm. Prince was uh, very uh, against the sort of rising trend of uh, songs being shared uh, around the web without you know the permissions of the artist. And uh-huh. I was going to say, after being screwed by Warner Brothers, I, I can kind of see where he's coming from. Mm-hmm. And so he railed against the idea of providing his songs to online music platforms without proper sort of upfront compensation or some sort of profit sharing. So eventually the only place he ended up allowing his music to be was on the streaming service Tidal, which was the one that was backed by uh, Jay-Z and Kanye West and all those guys. T-I-D-A-L. Yeah, yeah. Tidal, like Tidal Wave, sorry. Yeah, it seems like that comes up every so often in our I found out it's it's still around. Um, it never took off and became like the big Spotify competitor that it, it wanted to be because I think yeah. the, I think it was a bit more expensive than even premium Spotify. I think but, we predicted that though. <laughs> yeah, but I guess because they are the really the only major streaming service that plays flak lossless files uh, quality, mm-hmm. they're apparently still used by like people that are like into high definition or high quality music and stuff. So yeah, he ended up, he allowed his music to be on unti- on Tidal, since because of you know getting out of his Warner Brothers contract, he was one of the few pop artists to actually have complete ownership of his original masters of his music. Hmm. Uh, he was really diligent uh, via a site called Web Sheriff at basically tracking down unlicensed use of his music, uh, including videos and performances off the internet. So I imagine like people posting his music on YouTube and stuff. Yeah, it was a big no-no while he was around. He basically, like, Prince will hunt you down and snap your neck. Well, so I, I looked it up just to see. And so he is on Spotify now. I know he used to not be. And I, it used to also be, like, impossible to find his music on YouTube. My my guess is maybe, unfortunately, and we'll get into this in a sec, uh, after his death, maybe they, his estate loosened restrictions because hashtag money. It's a good hashtag. Because, yeah, he is on Spotify now, and you can listen to pretty much all of his stuff there. But, yeah, you're right. When Spotify was first around, yeah, he was not on there at all. Yeah. Prince passed away April 21st, 2016. He was born in 1975, so he was 57 years old. So he wasn't very old. Mm. The circumstances around his death were sort of mysterious. They found him dead uh, at his Paisley Park mansion in Minnesota, the week prior to his death, his private plane that he was on uh, had to make an emergency landing, and he was hospitalized uh, with what was told to be a, a severe case of the flu, uh, even though reports later said that uh, he was actually given a what's called a life-saving, quote, safe shot, which is like a mm. almost like an EpiPen or something for someone that's overdosing from uh, painkillers, like Percocet. Mm. What basically was discovered after his death that basically he never revealed or talked about was that he had undergone a hip surgery some years prior and he was enduring chronic pain due to sort of side effects of that surgery that basically he would deal with while doing concerts and basically just suck it up 
And in order to cope with it, he basically became unfortunately addicted to pain medicine. But yeah, it's it's a bit of a mystery uh, as far as to really what caused it. But obviously, a lot of this information came out after the fact. It's just, it's just it's extra sad because it was it was all caused by the personal battle he was having that basically went unknown to the public and basically uh-huh. just kind of self medicated and dealt with dealt with himself until unfortunately it killed him. Well, that's sad. Yeah. So yeah, that is that's very sad. Um, uh, I don't think he has any. Does he have children? Let me see. Probably had a bunch. Da, 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 da. Yeah, it doesn't really say anything about any surviving kin, so I don't think he had kids. Uh, he probably hmm. he probably smashed a lot, but he smashed with protection. Well, and we encourage you to do the same as well, listeners. Yes. And then tell us about it on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash getyourfunk. Yes, uh, and... If you want to hear other episodes about uh, artists smashing uh, and getting hip surgery, you can listen to all of our episodes at our website, getyourfunk.com. Uh, we will be back with more episodes uh, with topics that we just came up with on this episode. So this has <laughs> this has been your host, Kyle. And this has been your host, Peter. Thank you for listening. Um, I'm glad that we finally got to do this topic after putting it off for like five years Mm -hmm. um but uh yeah we will be back with something different next time and we hope you will be listening next time Mm -hmm. but if not then well whatever (laughs) bye